Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung and welcome to Prophecy Today. My temporary studios are set up in Phoenix, Arizona. We're here to be here for exactly 10 days, and I'll be speaking each and every night for those 10 days, and then during the daytime, we'll travel to the next location. It's a promotion for the VCY America Radio Network. We're so excited about the opportunity to reach these people with the information of the soon-coming rapture of the church and all the information that we pass along with our broadcast partners. Pray for us as we travel these next 10 days and pray that I'll have the strength to be able to stand up on all of these opportunities and preach and teach the Word of God. Well, as we always do, we go to Ken Timmerman. Ken's the man who covers the geopolitical activities for us here on the broadcast. He's traveled all over the world. He's a world-known journalist. He's an author. And in fact, that's how I want to start our conversation today. Ken, I think it was back in 2005, somewhere along there, that you wrote a book, Countdown to Crisis, The Coming Nuclear Showdown with Iran. And I have read the reviews, it seems to me, It's almost a book that you could have written yesterday where we are in what's going on with Iran, and you have a special price on it. Can you explain the book and then tell us about the special price? Yeah, Jimmy, Countdown to Crisis, as you say, came out some time ago. It reads as if it was written yesterday. Many people have asked me about it recently. It's out of print. So I put out an e-book version, a Kindle edition version for $3.99, uh, with a new preface uh, talking about recent events. Everything that we have been talking about over the past couple of years, you and I on this program, is prefigured in this book, Countdown to Crisis. It'll tell you all about uh, Iranian terrorism, the Iranian involvement in the 9-11 attacks, things that I've learned from Iranian defectors that still have not yet made it into the so-called mainstream of American reporting Our listeners have heard a lot of this information because we talk about it here on these airwaves. So it's important information for people to have, and I wanted to make it more available and more accessible in this new ebook. The easiest thing is to go to my website, kentimmerman.com, and you'll find a link right up near the top of the website. Or you can search for it in the Kindle store at Amazon. Just look for Countdown to Crisis, and you'll see that pop up. It's a must-read, dear friends, so get a copy of it at an unbelievable price. Well, let's now get to the news of the day. Maybe you'll write another book about this as well. President Rouhani of Iran has said they have been enriching even more uranium now than they did prior to the Obama-Iranian nuclear deal. Uh, That does not sound good for what's happening in our world today, does it? Well, no, and, and Jimmy, this should not really come as a surprise to anybody who's been following the nuclear weapons program in Iran, because the Obama-era nuclear deal allowed them to modernize their uranium enrichment equipment to build new generation centrifuges. Uh, we've seen photographs appear over the past week of sixth-generation centrifuges. They call them IR-6, Iran-6. Uh, These are many, many, many times faster and more efficient than what they had before the nuclear deal, and they developed it while they were under these so-called restrictions. It just goes to show you there weren't really any restrictions on Iran's nuclear weapons program 
with the Obama-era nuclear deal. And, and in my opinion, President Trump has been absolutely right to get out of that deal and to put new restrictions on Iran, to squeeze them economically, to put in place what he's calling a maximum pressure campaign that the Iranian government is uh, feeling the impact of. Ken, King Abdullah of Jordan was recently in Europe. He addressed the European Parliament, went to many other locations to address the European leaders, and he had a very strong warning. He says that Islamic State is on the rise, and he was talking about in Libya. And it's very interesting. This is spilling out and causing more trouble for the European Union that they would expect. They have been watching Islamic State. Many of their civilians have gone and joined with Islamic State. Uh, This is a development we need to keep an eye on there in Libya, isn't it? Well, that is correct. And the Islamic State fighters, some of them have moved to Libya. Uh, They may have gone there with the help of Turkey. uh, Remember, Turkey moved military forces to Libya about two weeks ago. But i got to say, you know, I love the King of Jordan, but whenever he goes to Europe or to Washington, he's got his tin cup out, and he's banging it as hard (laughs) as he possibly can to get uh, increased aid from, uh, you know, Europe or the United States. ISIS is not moving into Jordan. That is not the fear. He does see some recrudescence of ISIS in Syria, but really it's very small. The real problem, he says, is in Libya. We've seen it coming for quite some time. And by the way, the Europeans are not without fault because they have been supporting this puppet government in Tripoli that has allowed ISIS to come in. And ironically, it's been the Russians who've been supporting Haftar in Benghazi who have been fighting against ISIS. Well, let's uh, follow that just a little bit more because uh, this week in Moscow there was a meeting between the warring sides in the Libyan conflict. Can you give us information about what took place at that meeting? Well, that's right. So the the Russian government brought senior representatives of both Haftar and the EU-backed government and the Turkish-backed government in Tripoli to Moscow to see if they could work out a deal. Uh, I haven't seen that anything concrete has come out of those talks at this point, but... uh, Okay, look, it's always good, as Churchill said, jaw-jaw is better than war-war, even if jaw-jaw happens in the middle of war-war. We are talking often when we get together with you, Ken, about Iran and their proxies. Now it's being reported that Iran and Hezbollah are preparing for a guerrilla-type war and possibly rocket attacks on U.S. facilities They're in Iraq and around the Middle East, but also they're going to be firing some rockets at Israel. This could cause the action to pick up in the Middle East, couldn't it? It it could. Uh, We're going to see in the next couple of weeks whether the Iranians feel that they can reactivate their proxy forces, which include Hezbollah in Lebanon, to launch aggressive attacks. And in one sense, I imagine they would feel more comfortable attacking Israel than they would in attacking U.S. forces in the Middle East. Why? Because they know how the Israelis are going to respond. The Israelis will respond by attacking Hezbollah in Lebanon or by attacking uh, Hezbollah armed shipments in Syria. They will not respond by attacking Iran. The United States, on the other hand, uh, now that President Trump has made clear there's a red line that he has drawn that the Iranians cannot cross, 
uh, the United States, should Iran launch attacks that kill Americans, could pay a price inside Iran or to really key facilities that it has in Iraq. So uh, they see that they would pay a bigger potential price for hitting the United States than they would for hitting Israel. Ken, I've got to ask you about what's going on in Russia. The Russian prime minister resigned. The rest of the government resigned after Vladimir Putin announced a change that would keep him in power a lot longer than it seems like he should be, according to the restrictions of times in office there in Russia. What is going on? Well, Putin's term in office as president expires in 2024, and and he is term limited under the Constitution. So just as he did during an earlier iteration of his lifetime in power in 2008, he's trying to switch seats with Medvedev, the current prime minister. Uh, Look, Putin is just doing what Putin does. He's manipulating the Constitution. The Constitution of Russia could be called the Constitution of Putin. He's just manipulating the Constitution to guarantee that he can stay in power until he drops dead. And uh, that certainly seems to be his intention. And as of right now, there's not an awful lot of forces we see in Russia to oppose him. So Medvedev resigned so he can be reappointed in a caretaker government. Putin will, you know, switch around the Constitution to create a powerful prime minister's job. But, of course, it won't go into effect until 2024 when Putin is going to be leaving the presidency. So all of this is a kind of predictable Vladimir Putin president for life operation. Putin almost seems like he's quoting from the scripture. He is warning now a full-scale war in the Middle East will be a catastrophe. Boy, that sounds like Ezekiel 38. I mean, is that a premonition that he is going to be the leader of this Islamic coalition who tries to wipe Israel off the face of the earth? Well, it's interesting that Putin should say this. You wonder whether this is a honest warning uh, of real threats in the region, or, as you say, is it a cynical warning of something that he himself has in mind? At this point, I'll tell you, the the jury's out on that. Uh, The Russians are getting increasingly involved all across the Middle East, not just in Syria, not just as a strategic ally of Iran, uh, which, by the way, they continue to reaffirm that they are a strategic ally of Iran, But as we just mentioned here, they're getting involved in Libya as well. So Russia is involved now in the Middle East in a far deeper way than we've seen them really since the early 1980s. And uh, what are their real intentions? We don't know at this point. Very interesting report from Ken Timmerman. Ken covers geopolitical activities for us, current events unfolding around the world, seemingly setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. By the way, it's a great offer. It's a must-read. You should go to Ken's website, kentimmerman.org, and there you'll find Countdown to Crisis, the coming nuclear showdown with Iran, It's like it was written yesterday, but he did write it a couple of years ago. It's right up to date and a very special price on it. Ken, thank you so very much. Appreciate you being with us today. We'll have another conversation next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. It's always a pleasure. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to the Middle East once again. We're going to be talking with David Dolan. David has his Middle East news update for us. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. 
Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. We're here in temporary studios in Phoenix, Arizona. We're traveling out this far west here in the United States for the purpose of doing a number of one-night rallies, 10 nights in a row, and we're going to travel during the daytime to the next location. We're doing this for VCY America. It is a broadcasting, a Christian broadcasting network. We're on their network two times every single day, and uh, they have just purchased a big powerful FM radio station in Phoenix. It covers all of Arizona, parts of New Mexico, and the Panhandle in Texas. So we're going to be traveling in that region, a different meeting each and every night, these radio rallies, and we're excited about what's going to be taking place. Pray for us as we do that. That's why we're in temporary studios here in Phoenix, Arizona. Well, right now, as I promised, we go to David Dolan, with our Middle East news update. Off the top, David, let me ask you about Hamas. Hamas, the terrorist organization located there in the Gaza Strip, calling for a massive prayer meeting, a gathering at the Temple Mount, and then also another in Hebron at the Cave of the Patriarchs, Machpelah Cave. What's the deal here? Well, Jimmy, drawing attention once again to their claims to having exclusive Islamic control over those two holy sites, of course, ironic in that it is the Jewish patriarchs and matriarchs that are buried in Hebron, 
not Mohammed's ancestors or any Arabs at all. These are the Jewish patriarchs and matriarchs, and of course the Temple Mount, where the Jewish temple was built, and uh, later again after its first destruction, etc. So that they would claim exclusive control of these sites is rather ridiculous, but they do. And on Friday, Jimmy, yesterday, we did have some rioting on the Temple Mount. They had called, as you said, for everybody to come out for early morning prayers, to fill the place up like never before. And there were huge crowds, but the police did limit some that could go up there. But afterwards, two or three hundred of the young men up there started shouting slogans and marching around and throwing things. And the police came up and there was a clash on the Temple Mount. So once again, this is the center of their theology. They can't allow the Jews to gain further control over these holy sites, they think, because this further strengthens Israel's roots in the land. And indeed, it does that, Jimmy. And indeed, these are ancient Jewish holy sites. It's only natural that religious Jews today would want to pray at these sites. Well, it's also very interesting, David, this last week at the Supreme Court there in Israel, they made a decision allowing the Muslims to build a mosque up on the Temple Mount. Give me the details on that. Well, yes, they've been wanting to expand into the um, Golden Gate area, and the Israelis really have uh, no religious particular connection to, to that particular spot. I mean, it's part of the Temple Mount, and the Golden Gate was a gate into the Temple Mount, so of course it is part of the overall ancient Jewish structure, but it's not the center of the Mount or anything that's that important to them. The Muslims want to add on to that, and the Israelis went in and took pictures. They checked the area first. The Muslims howled about that, so that's a violation even to have them around at all. But they're going to, you know, continue the policy, apparently, the Netanyahu government is, and probably any other government that would follow it, to um, uh, basically provide for the status quo that the Muslims have the majority of the time on the Temple Mount, that they are the uh, first among equals, as it were, up there, but to continue to liberalize the policy of allowing Jews to go up and pray. And as you and I have spoken about before, uh, over 30,000 Jews went up last year in 2019. These were religious Jews going up there specifically to pray. There were many more that went up as tourists or as part of tour groups or whatever like that, but they didn't count in this uh, survey. So uh, growing Jewish interest in the Temple Mount and, again, a desire by the government to keep things as calm as possible. They're not about to throw the Muslims off of the Temple Mount or to forbid them from praying at the Makpalah Cave in Hebron. But the Jews also want those rights and also want their share of what is, after all, their holiest site on earth. David, a very interesting announcement coming out of the Israeli government this week, a statement that uh, the Israelis believe Iran will go to a full nuclear operation by the month of December. Uh, that's just about 11 months from now when Iran could be totally nuclear. Is that of real concern, I guess, for the Israelis today? 
Well, Jimmy, what's interesting to me is, for once, the United Nations is actually taking a more dire view of that topic than the Israelis are. As you said, the Israeli report suggested by the end of this year, or at the latest, the middle of next year, Iran would have enough enriched uranium to produce a nuclear bomb and the delivery system to get it to neighboring countries. Well, the U.N. has actually said it could be just two to three months before they're able to do that. And, Jimmy, as I've said all along, this is a secretive country. We all know that. They've been hiding a lot of their work. And, uh, you know, the Israelis have pointed out where they're doing this and that. And they talked about an underground missile a city this week, the Iranians did, that we knew was there, but that they'd held secret beforehand. So we really don't know that they don't already have a nuclear weapon or two. We just don't know because there's other methods than their own enrichment to get such a weapon, especially via Pakistan, via the old Soviet Union. Uh, there's known to have been these uh, suitcase uh, nuclear backpack bombs on the black market in previous decades. We just are not sure. But what the Israelis are saying that from what we are sure of, what they're doing now above ground with the nuclear deal, basically having completely falling fallen apart in the three European powers this week, noting that, saying they want to see Iran back in that program, that they see them in violation now of that agreement, basically the death nail to it. But we see them desiring, continuing to desire to build such a weapon. We now know they can do it quickly. And again, Jimmy, as I said last week, all this really does increase the chances that Israel will take preemptive action. As the Prime Minister said, if we have strong evidence, if we feel Iran's on the verge of going nuclear, we have any evidence of that, we will take action. We won't allow them to have a nuclear weapon. He's said that Netanyahu has so many times, and of course President Trump has echoed that, so the Iranians have to be uh, looking around them right now. And in light of what you're saying, David, there are some. Peter Pry, for example, here in the United States, he is very much concerned about the fact that Iran does already have a nuclear weapon. Nobody seems to be believing him, but uh, you made the statement, we don't know what we don't know, and that may well be the case. Well, speaking of Iran, it's quite interesting that if they are nuclear-powered or not, they're still dangerous. They're using their proxies, i.e. Hezbollah. And as I understand it, Iran and Hezbollah are preparing for a guerrilla-type war and preparing rockets to fire at Israel there in the north. This should be of great concern. Well, Jimmy, there's actually growing evidence that they were ready to spring this right after that attack on the U.S. Uh, two bases in the Middle East. We now know that score of uh, American soldiers were wounded in that attack, not severely, but enough that they received treatment. There were several concussions. We know that an American contractor in a lone little shelter near one of the blast sites was nearly killed. So, you know, they were trying to kill, and had they done that and not, this is a very key point, and not shot down the Ukrainian uh, airliner, civilian jet with mostly Iranians on board, a lot of them Canadian dual citizens, but mostly Iranians on board, had that not happened, many think we would be at full war right now. This war has not ended, but they do think that the next phase was to be and will still be at some point uh, that Hezbollah and these other militias, these other 
actors that have been funded, trained, set up by Iran that do its bidding were to get into the fray to draw in the United States and Israel further and carry on with this war. So it looks like they were ready for that. The tensions still remain high, Jimmy. This has not gone away. They're not talking peace. They're still talking very much war. Talk to me about the Palestinian hope that when Vladimir Putin makes a visit to Bethlehem, he's going to see if he can take a larger role in the peace process in the Middle East. That's an interesting visit to take place just in a couple of days. It is, Jimmy, but he was supposed to be in Israel for the most part of next week, and he canceled that back to just a one-day visit. He comes in Thursday morning, flies out that evening, so some of those meetings are not going to take place that were earlier thought or earlier on the schedule. He says it's because of the crisis in Russia, but uh, many Israelis see it as another sign of the weakening support from Russia for Israel. The Middle East News Update from David Dolan. The man's been a journalist in the Middle East over 35 years. He knows what's going on, can give us the proper insight into all of these current events. David, thank you so much for your report. Appreciate it. We'll have another conversation next week with another Middle East News Update. Glad to do it, Jimmy, and God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Winky Madad will come to the broadcast table. We're going to be talking about what King Abdullah has been saying to the European Parliament. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. I'm here in Temporary Studios in Phoenix, Arizona. We're here to do 10 days each and every night. I'll be speaking at a different location, traveling in the daytime, making our way into a church or a conference hall where I will be speaking for VCY America. So we're going to all of those different locations. Pray for us as we promote our broadcast and our ministry as well. Well, we're going to the area of Shiloh. That's that ancient Jewish city in the center part of the state of Israel. Historic background, 350 years where the Ark of the Covenant rested inside a tabernacle. And by the way, I don't have a report today, but we'll keep you posted on how the archaeological dig in Shiloh is going. Winky Madad always enjoys talking about that. But today, Winky, instead of the archaeological dig, I want to talk about King Abdullah, the king, the monarch over in Jordan. He recently was at the European Parliament there in the European Union. 
he was talking about annexation. In other words, that which is what the Prime Minister of Israel, Netanyahu, is considering doing. In fact, he has made the political promise, if he is reelected, he's going to annex Judea and Samaria and also the Jordan Valley. Now, Winky, before I ask you about the statement by King Abdullah, what does annexation all mean? What does it have to do with Judea and Samaria and the Jordan Valley? Well, Jim, let's first make clear the term. One state annexes the territory of another state. They can do it legally through a, uh, an agreement, such as has been done throughout history after various wars. Anybody opens up a history book will see various empires or countries dividing up territory in agreement. There is annexation in a certain sense. For example, when the Ottoman Empire went to war in World War I and lost, and so uh, the various nations who were fighting at the time divided up the Ottoman Empire because they took a chance and they lost. Most of the territories actually were not really annexed to the conquering nations such as France or Russia or England, but they were divided up among the local peoples, including uh, eventually the state of Israel. That's how we got our mandate going back to the 1920s and 30s and 40s. I could also point out that Jordan, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, illegally, by the way, annexed what today everybody calls the West Bank and what we all know is Judea and Samaria in 1950 after going to war against Israel. So to round out my answer, I hope that King Abdullah is not trying to raise the question of, again, him, his kingdom, trying to illegally annex the territory of the Jewish national home. And it seems that because of his speech that the European Parliament, he is concerned about Judea and Samaria and the Jordan Valley once again as it relates to the possibility of the sovereign state of Israel annexing that piece of real estate. He said that this would destroy a two-state solution. Now, my question is, is there still a two-state solution, and how would it destroy it? Well, first of all, let me quote someone that you know I know very well, both in person, before he passed on, and his heritage, Mr. Menachem Begin, who said that a people does not annex its own territory. In other words, the area of Judea and Samaria, and we've made this clear in the past, and I'm going to make it clear again on your program now, Jimmy, that territory was supposed to become part of the Jewish national home as decided by the League of Nations. So we think in Israel that the Jewish people and the Jewish state of Israel has the better claim to that area more than Jordan and more than even the local Arabs who are living there. Now, to get on to the question, the two-state solution really doesn't work anymore. That's because we have a Hamas state in Gaza already, and uh, that's not very successful. And we have basically a PLO, Palestinian Authority state, in the area of Judea and Samaria, and that's not getting along very well. So Israel cannot afford to put its future, its security, uh, its economics, its water resources, and everything else involved in maintaining uh, the survival and the existence of the state of Israel and its citizens in the hands of an entity that is, for all intents and purposes, still stuck in the stage of terror 
and revolution and resistance. And we, of course, if the king had said, I'm willing to extend, for example, autonomy, uh, condominium, uh, a federation, well, then we would have realized that he's moderate and he's trying to help the local Arabs. Just coming out against a two-state solution and doing it in the European Union, Jimmy, which has been violently, at least in verbal sense, anti-Israel for the past 40 years or so, I don't think that's a smart thing for him to do. You know, in addition to saying what you just referred to him as making the comments on, Abdullah said that Israel has disregard for international law. My question, what international law is he talking about? Well, uh, unfortunately, Jordan has been a partner in trying to harm, or should I say injure, uh, Israel's and the Jewish people's interests in places like Jerusalem by linking up with various UN or UNESCO resolutions that sort of strip the uh, uh, city of Jerusalem of its Jewish character, its Jewish history, its Jewish identity. Uh, And so in this case, I would suggest to the king uh, to put forward plans that could help the local Arabs gain some sort of a standing by proving they're worthy and not just demanding it, which would harm Israel. The king is concerned about uh, the safety, I do believe, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, for the Israeli Jewish state when he said that a war between Israel and Iran would wreak untold chaos in the world. And I don't understand how he could make that statement either. Can you explain it? No, uh, uh, Jimmy, I don't, uh, I don't want to be sort of talking down, but you and I have seen the better uh, side of many years. And I just don't understand Arab politics and Arab thinking on strategic the security regional issues here. I mean, if it wasn't for Israel in 1970, and I know I'm going back a long while, but you remember it, Jordan would have been swallowed up by Syria. We mm-hmm. put our tanks on the border and warned Syria not to invade Jordan. During the first Iraq war, Israel laid uh, a little bit of cover for Jordan while missiles were coming over. So he has a lot of debt owed Israel, including the Black September at that time. And so I I don't think that he should be so outrageously anti-Israel in international forums if he wants any sort of peace or arrangement here between Israel on the one hand and Jordan on the other. And let's not forget, Jordan is basically a Palestinian state both by virtue of its geography, located in what we call historic Palestine over the centuries, and his population, as far as I know, is well over 60% uh, originally from what we call Judea and Samaria. You know, I think as I've looked at what the king had to say there in the European Parliament, the only thing that came close to being somewhat real was the fact that uh, if there is a continued battle Uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians, it could bring about a resurgence of terrorism across the world. Well, that's going to happen anyway, but uh, that's probably pretty much a statement on target, would it not be? Well, look, Jimmy, let's, let's let's turn another page. The support of the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan is strong. It's not overwhelming, but it's strong. There are members of the Muslim Brotherhood in its parliament. There have been riots in the streets, both economic and otherwise. Uh, He does not rule over a strong 
state with a good economy, with a good security, with a good vision of what's going on. Anybody who reads the Jordan Times or the Petra News Service and easily go online and see that it's not in the best of condition. So why he keeps on picking fights with Israel instead of coming together and protecting his throne from what I would suggest would be a Palestinian takeover of the Hashemite Kingdom is, again, as I mentioned before in my other answer to you, I just don't understand the logic or the rationale sometimes of, of, of Arab leaders. However, because of what you said, Palestinians, 60 to 70 percent of the population of Jordan, and the fact is it should be Palestine over there across on the eastern side of the Jordan River. The king probably has some pretty good reasons for being concerned about what's happening, doesn't he? Look, a king today, anywhere in the world, always has his problems. Because most other countries are either democratic, parliamentarian, or, uh, like Russia, a little bit dictatorial. And people don't like monarchies much, or to keep the monarchy in place, you have to be very oppressive sometimes. So he rules over a country that, no matter what he says, is not that democratic and not that free. He doesn't have much natural resources. He's landlocked except for the Aqaba port, which is right next to a lot. So I would think that you would say, why can't I make peace or keep the peace, and they, Jordan did sign a peace treaty with us, Jimmy and listeners, back in 1994, but in many cases, he keeps on trying to turn or knock over the, the milk container on the table for <laughs> reasons that I, again, I admit to you, I don't really understand. Absolutely. By the way, I'm going to suggest next time I see the king that you should be an advisor to the monarchy there. You could give them some real sharp thinking about how the operation should unfold. Winky, thank you so much for being available. It's very important we continue to have conversations with you because of your knowledge, but also because of the insight you bring to our broadcast table. Thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk again soon. Jimmy, have a great time in Arizona and success. And uh, thank you very much for having me on the program. Goodbye to you and our listeners. Well, let's stay in Israel and, in fact, in Jerusalem. We're going to be talking with Itamar Marcus. He is at the offices of Palestinian Media Watch. We catch him on duty today, and we're going to be talking to him about the Palestinian media, what the Palestinian people are saying to the Palestinian people through the print media and the electronic media as well. Edomar, you had a couple of articles this week that were talking about the 55th anniversary. I believe that was of Fatah. But people here in America, they're not really understanding why there are two different comments when we talk about the Palestinian people. In other words, Hamas is a terrorist organization. Fatah seems to be the governing body. Can you take just a brief moment at the beginning of our conversation and explain these two factions of the body politic of the Palestinian people? Well, Fatah was also founded as a terror organization in uh, 1965, and they continued to celebrate their first terror attack in 1965, every January 1st. So they were a terror organization, and they actually pledged to continue using what they called the armed struggle. They continued to threaten, and they actually continued to reward terrorists. So this is Fatah. However, they're not 
They're not officially a terror organization because the head of Fatah, Yasser Arafat, in 1993 signed the Oslo Accords with Israel, at which time he publicly renounced terror for the international community. Hamas is a terror movement founded in 1988, which has never recognized Israel's right to exist either privately or publicly, and continues to talk openly about the use of terror until Israel will be destroyed. So, Fatah tells its people they're using terror and to continue using it, but tells the international community that it wants peace and it is nonviolent, whereas Hamas tells its people and tells the international community that it will use violence and terror. That is the difference. As far as Israel is concerned, it's not such a great difference because ultimately you have people who support Fatah and Hamas both committing terror. Yeah, that's exactly what I seem to get from the comments you've just made. This helps to clear up for our listeners who the two different organizations are, and you can take out almost the word different because they're very similar in their activity. Now, I understand it was Yasser Arafat who brought Fatah into the world and a part of the body politic of the Palestinian people in Israel. His number one assistant was Mahmoud Abbas at the time. Is that correct? Yes, Mahmoud Abbas is also, he's today 83, so he was uh, a young man when Fatah was founded and started its terror campaigns. And he has been there the whole way. He has been there besides Arafat, not just in the early years of terror, but from 2000 to 2005 when uh, Fatah under uh, Yasser Arafat led the, what they called the Intifada. 1,200 Israelis killed, mostly by suicide bombings. All of it uh, directed and promoted by Yasser Arafat. And his right-hand man during that whole period was Mahmoud Abbas. Somebody used to say in times past that you could see the difference between Yasser Arafat and Mahmoud Abbas. One of them wore a military uniform. That was Arafat. The other, a dress suit. And, of course, he was just a terrorist in a dressed suit. Well, the 55th anniversary was celebrated over in Bethlehem. Why was that the case? Every year, Fatah celebrates its anniversary in Bethlehem with a march. And this march honors terrorists. We have seen children just recently, in some of the recent marches, children have have walked through the streets with masks on uh, and wearing plastic mock suicide belts. Now, why would you have children? What message is that to children that they're going around with suicide belts? Other children walked around with RPGs. Uh, other adults walked around with hatchets. Many of them carried AK-47 rifles, automatic rifles. So, so you're talking about a military terror-supporting parade by Fatah, supposedly the peace partner, and this is going through the streets of, Beth- streets of Bethlehem, which is a Christian city, believing in, in Christianity certainly is promoting peace, and you've got essentially the Palestinian Authority turning this Christian city into a bastion of terror promotion. Several things I can understand from your comments are so wrong, teaching the children to be involved in a violent attack on the Jewish people of Israel, number one. They're training them up now to be the henchman that will take care of uh, the responsibility of a guy like Mahmoud Abbas, who is in his 80s and will be passing from the scene pretty soon. It would seem like he has been the president of the Palestinian Authority from a number of years. People wanting to go to a vote, they're not. Uh, he's not allowing that to happen. But at the same time, it looks like that they are not really interested. 
I hear from Washington, D.C., Donald Trump is considering presenting his peace plan for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That doesn't seem like what Mahmoud Abbas, head of the Palestinian Authority, head of the Fatah organization, uh, the terrorist organization of the Palestinian people, is looking forward to in 2020. They want more of the same violence and the armed struggle against the Jewish state. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas has already, since Trump announced that he was going to come up with a plan, Abbas already has rejected it, and and he and every one of his leaders have rejected it, condemned it. Uh, We've had such hateful statements about the American leadership, the one of Abbas's advisor on religion, of no less. Uh, Mahmoud al-Abbas uh, talked about what was being said by some American leaders, and he said the, the urine of a Palestinian child is, is more important than mm. the words of these American leaders. So that's the attitude of the Palestinian Authority to the United States. By the way, what's so shocking about this is the United States until a year ago was the number one funder of the Palestinian Authority. The number one funder since it was established uh, under many, many presidents, most presidents, uh, the United States gave hundreds, many hundreds, over half a billion dollars a year to the Palestinian Authority. And in response, you've got Palestinian leaders saying that the urine of a Palestinian child is worth more than the words of American leaders. So the, the Palestinian Authority has disproved the old statement, a um, person doesn't, uh, a dog doesn't bite the hand that feeds him. Well, the Palestinian Authority doesn't care who has been supporting them. They are filled with hatred to the United States. When the United States was funding them, they were a little bit quieter about it. But as soon as the United States isn't pouring over the money, they let their hatred right out of the bag. Wow, wow. That is some very harsh statements being made to children, to adults, to the Palestinian people through the media. I was on your homepage, palwatch.org, and I saw some promotional material from the Palestinians. They wanted to burn down Jewish cities. Is that real, or is that just symbolism? They actually had, uh, this is again, as part of their celebrations of, uh, of 55 years of terror, they, they built a model of a Jewish town, the way they look, uh, many of them in, in Judea and Samaria. And the person who spoke in front of this model was actually Mahmoud al-Habash, who is the, the number two in Fatah. He is Mahmoud Abbas's deputy. So he's a very, very senior person. He, he expressed all of his hate speech, first of all. He glorified terrorists. And then when he got down, someone else got up and spoke for a moment, and they poured gasoline on this model this big, big model of had about 20 or 30 houses on it, uh, and then they uh, lit it, and, and the cheering crowds were, were, were all cheering as the town was burning in front of them. So the message here is very clearly one of using violence, terror, and hatred, and in fact, they used language indicating that they will continue to use all means against Israel, which is, of course, their euphemism for murder and killing of Israelis. Let me ask you one final question, Itamar. Their desire, using this armed struggle and all this violence, is to try to have a Palestinian state. Do the Palestinian leadership, does it really believe that will lead what they're doing now to a Palestinian state? The Palestinian leadership doesn't want a Palestinian state. That's a big, big mistake that people often make. Had they wanted a state, they could have had one when... 
Ehud Barak offered them virtually all of Judea and Samaria, and then he was Prime Minister of Israel uh, in the year 2000. He offered almost all of Judea and Samaria to them. And then later on, Ehud Olmert was Prime Minister, and he likewise offered almost all of Judea and Samaria to them. And in fact, he, he offered, for the, for the few percentage that Israeli cities would remain, he offered the equivalent land uh, from Israel from, from the state of Israel, so that they were getting everything they wanted, and yet first Arafat was the one who rejected it, and then Mahmoud Abbasi also rejected So they don't want a Palestinian state. What they do is they say they're fighting for a Palestinian state, they reject all of Israel's terms, and then this way they, this way they can claim that they're justified in committing terror because there is no Palestinian state. But they have said many times that their goal is the elimination of Israel. Their children are brought up to see the goal as the elimination of Israel. The claim that they want two states is a smokescreen so that they can continue with their terror. And dear friends, that's the bottom line as it relates to the Palestinian leadership in Israel and how they're using the media to try to incite the people to help them accomplish their goal. Itamar, you and your team should be congratulated almost every day because of the work you're doing. Thank you so very much. We appreciate you giving us some time for this conversation. We'll have another one real soon. Always a pleasure to be with you, Jimmy. Well, we're changing regions of the world. We go now to the European Union, located on the European continent. 28 member states involved in the European Union, but one is going to be departing seemingly very soon now. We'll talk about that in a moment. The man who covers the European Union for us, John Rood, he lived in Brussels, Belgium for over 30 years, knows that European Union just about inside and outside. John, let's get underway right away. The Iranians are not only involved with uh, some type of an action towards the United States, but they're warning those in the European Union that there's going to be a strong response if indeed the European Union imposes sanctions, something similar to the United States. Iran's going after everybody, aren't they? Well, we've had a, a lot of happenings in the last week since we last spoke. The uh, European Union has launched a dispute mechanism against Iran as far as their placement in the uh, nuclear agreement and so forth. And looking into the story, Britain, France, and Germany have gone on record saying they had no choice but to do this. It was a very impressive action because they've been so passive towards Iran this could actually lead to U.N. sanctions. Now the news has just broken that really the EU action is in response to the USA pressure that they were willing to put 25% tariffs on the European cars. So European Union is asked to pick who they're going to work with, and of course the financial ties have been very strong with Iran, but they're siding with the United States on this. Iran is, of course, furious and they have essentially broken all compliance with the nuclear deal. They've restarted uranium enrichment, although they didn't specify to what percentage of purity. But the European Union is beginning to take a stand here. They hope to have a diplomatic solution, but this is very unusual. They're taking a strong stand, and looks like they're leaning towards the United States position. Well, the European Union doing some very interesting things as it relates to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. 
I understand the European Union has set some conditions for aid to be given from the European Union to the Palestinian Authority. And the PA, the Palestinian Authority, a bit upset. They say that the European Union is demanding that the Palestinians sever all ties with any type of terror groups. You think they're going to sit still for that? This has been uh, quite a week for news coming out of the EU in, in relationship to the Middle East. The EU has said that if Palestinian Authority or institutions have any connection with organizations that are on the EU terror list, then it would be conditional funding so that it would be unilaterally stopped. So Palestinian Authority has sort of countered saying that there's 134 Palestinian organizations that promote the delegitimization of Israel and boycotts. And so they're actually putting terrorist groups from the EU specified, saying that uh, their political parties, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine and Hamas, they're saying they're political parties. But the EU is stepping down. They're serious that if there is any connection with these groups, the EU funding is going to stop. It's, it's such a bold move from the EU. I'm wondering as well if there's not some type of United States pressure on this side, just like we saw with Iran and the sanctions. The European Union seems to be ready to do some business now with the Middle East and take a stand. Yeah, very interesting development there. We'll stay on top of it as we have our conversations with John Rood, who is the man who covers the European Union for us. We're talking about politics, but of course, politics setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. John, a very important, interesting report you've given us today. Thank you so much. We'll talk again next week. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break right now, the top of the hour for news or whatever comes your way on the network. We'll be back with David James going to be talking about a split in the United Methodist Church. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to the last half hour of Prophecy Today. If you have given me 90 minutes, which is what I request each and every week, I have given you the world and all the current events of great importance that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. So glad you could join us. We're here at Broadcast Central, which is not Chattanooga, Tennessee, but instead Phoenix, Arizona. We're here for 10 days and 10 rallies, a rally a day, traveling in the daytime to go to the next location in promotion for the new VCY radio power station in Phoenix. VCY is one of the Christian networks that assist us in getting our program on the air. We're on the air with VCY twice a day. We're going to go to the different parts of Arizona into New Mexico and then the panhandle of Texas go to regions where this radio broadcast from the big station in Phoenix can be heard. Pray for us as we travel and give the word of God about the radio network and what God's word says prophetically. By the way, let me announce that we have a brand new DVD. It's a two-disc DVD, and it's responding to the question, is the United States in Bible prophecy? 
It's available at my bookstore, prophecytoday.com. Brand new. Just off of the press. We've just completed it. They've duplicated it. You can get your copy. Go to the Prophecy Bookstore, prophecytoday.com. Just before we go to David James, let me give you the poll question. In Islamic eschatology, the Mahdi, the Muslim Messiah, will go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and set up a worldwide Islamic kingdom. Do you believe that the massive Hamas prayer gatherings on the Temple Mount is a precursor to the Islamic world's desire for that eschatological event in Islam to take place? Now that's the poll question. Go to the website and answer that question. We now bring to these microphones David James. David and I have a conversation right here on Prophecy Today each and every week. The conversation is for the purpose of looking at an issue that may be confronting the church, born-again, Bible-believing Christians. We want to have a biblical perspective to whatever the issue is for the purpose of helping each of us walk our daily life with Jesus Christ. Now, this week, we catch up with David after his second week of ministry in the Philippines. He's on his way back home, and I'm betting he's excited about getting back home and having a couple of days before he goes out again. By the way, David, I understand that it's been somewhat of an adventure with all the volcano eruptions that have been taking place out there in the Philippines. Well, that's right, Jimmy. It's been a great two weeks. I love coming here, but I am glad to be on my way home. I I taught the course Understanding Roman Catholicism and Intro to Graphics and PowerPoint Design here. And as you said, it's been a bit of an adventure as well, since the Word of Life camp is only 20 miles east of the volcano. The alert level for that volcano is still four out of five, meaning they believe that another major eruption is imminent. And I just hope, honestly, if it erupts again, it will hold off until we can get into the air and be on our way back home. You know, David, as I'm listening to you giving us the adventure story that you were able to be a part of there in the Philippines, I think of the Apostle Paul, snake bit, had a shipwreck. They thought he was dead at one time. Ah, You're getting in line to compete with the Apostle Paul there, but uh, keep your eyes on the Lord. He'll take care of you. Hey, listen, last week we were originally planning on covering the announcement over the likely split in the United Methodist Church over the issue of same-sex marriages and the ordination of the LGBT clergy. But because of the situation with Iran, You and I decided to postpone that discussion until this week and focus on the history of Iran, which, boy, you gave some great information during that conversation as well. Well, thanks, Jimmy. And, of course, because of the 24-hour news cycle and the world we live in with so many things happening all the time, most stories fade quickly, even the important ones. And this is true of the United Methodist Church story as well. When we first started thinking about discussing it, it was all over the Internet and the news, but it's already almost ancient history in some ways by today's standards. But on the other hand, it's still an important story and one worth us spending some time on before we get too far down the road. One reason... 
uh, this issue is important is just the sheer size of the United Methodist denomination with uh, some 7 million members in the United States and 12 million worldwide, making it the second largest Protestant church after the Southern Baptist Convention. On January 3rd, the denomination's leadership announced plans to split the church over what were called fundamental differences over the homosexual issue, as you noted. And this all involves a process that's been going on for some time, and it isn't over yet. It won't be until there is a vote at the annual convention in May that uh, this will be settled. But what happened a couple of weeks ago is another major step. And the split would result in the formation of a new denomination for those United Methodist churches holding to the traditional, and we would say the biblical view of marriage is only between a man and a woman. Well, I do believe it's going to be a valuable conversation, one that people must pay close attention to. And you know, David, since many who listen to our conversations each week tend to be more conservative, they may not know that much about the Methodist Church, which has long been somewhat of a liberal denomination in general. So maybe you could take a moment to give us some quick background information about the Methodist Church. Sure. Well, the United Methodist Church is the denomination itself only dates back to 1968 when the Evangelical United Brethren Church and the Methodist Church came together to form a new denomination. But Methodism actually traces its roots back to the brothers John and Charles Wesley in England in the first half of the 1700s. John Wesley was ordained as an Anglican priest in 1728, and Charles formed a Bible study group at Oxford known as the Holy Club, which ended up being led by his brother John. And this group started studying the Bible in a systematic way, in contrast to the Anglican Church, and because of their approach, they were mocked and labeled Methodists because of the systematic uh, way they studied the Bible, and Methodist actually stuck as a name for them. John became a preacher and an evangelist, especially to blue-collar workers, and what he and others like George Whitfield did ultimately led to the Second Great Awakening, which also brought Methodism to the United States. And since their first constitution in 1801, there have been many splits and offshoots, with maybe the majority becoming more liberal and some becoming more conservative. As a whole, I would say they teach a works-based salvation, and they aren't generally dispensational. And there were some strange things that happened during the early 1800s in the frontier revivals that were, I would say, precursors to the Pentecostal movement, at least in part because of Wesley's second work of grace doctrine. You know, it is interesting to get that background information, but David, I believe we need a bit more background before we continue our discussion. Getting back to the upcoming split in the United Methodist Church, can you give us some more background concerning how and why the denomination got to the point over gender-related issues? Well, this thing has really been brewing for a long time, and it's not just this issue. It's been a wide range of issues, and including liberal theology in general. I remember almost 30 years ago, and you probably do too, that older people who had grown up in the original Methodist Church would say things like, I didn't leave the church, but the church left me. Uh, in one article I read, the executive director of the conservative United Methodist Confessing Movement said that, 
questions related to the inclusion of LGBT members goes back to as far as 1972, something I didn't realize. In 1972, the General Conference voted to add language to the Book of Discipline, stating that the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. And this issue has been revisited every four years at subsequent General Conference meetings until 2016, when delegates voted to hold a special session to finally settle the debate. Now, that year, there was a vote to strengthen and reinforce the ban on the ordination and marriage of LGBT people, but many were determined to resist while remaining in the denomination. Now, that same year, again, 2016, a proposal was accepted to defer debate on these issues until after a period of study and discussion by a special commission. So now it appears they are about ready to end five decades of turmoil within the UMC, the United Methodist church. David, if I understand correctly, the conservatives are the ones who are going to form a new denomination, but I understand they're going to do it with the help of the United Methodist Church itself, which seems very unusual. Well, you're right, and others have pointed out that it seems unusual to them as well. Apparently, most of the plans that have already been submitted to the 2020 General Conference would dissolve the United Methodist Church altogether. But that doesn't seem to be where this will end up. The stage now seems to be set for a new traditionalist, relatively conservative Methodist denomination. Uh, Various groups had put forth different plans for the split, but under the last proposal from a couple of weeks ago, the conservatives put their full support behind a proposal titled The Protocol of Reconciliation and Grace Through Separation. And as a part of this newest proposal uh, that will probably pass in May, by the way, there is funding for this new denomination by the United Methodist Church in the amount of some $25 million. I don't know how far that will go. But the president of the conservative Wesleyan Covenant Association wouldn't speculate about how many churches and conferences might join the new denomination, but he thought that if it forms, uh, it will be international as well. And one reason for this is that it's actually been a large segment of the international part of the UMC that has continued to oppose same-sex marriage and ordination, including uh, churches in Africa and their representatives uh, at these conferences, as well as a large constituency from even here in the Philippines. David, what do you think will be the ultimate result of all of this for the United Methodist Church? And for the new, more conservative denomination, if this split does actually take place. Well, to borrow from something I've heard you say many times, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but uh, I read an interesting article about this a couple of weeks ago that I think makes some good points. The author of that article said this, history says that the conservative branch will grow and the liberal branch will diminish, and this has been the pattern for decades. He went on to say that there was a major study dating back to 1972 that led to a book with the title, Why Conservative Churches Are Growing, a study in social sociology of religion, and the author of that book wrote this, amid the current neglect and hostility toward organized religion in general, the conservative church is holding to seemingly outmoded theology and making strict demands on their members have equaled or surpassed in growth the early percentage increases of the nation's population. So the point is this, the liberal arm of Methodism will probably continue to lose members, while the more conservative side, the more conservative denomination may grow. 
while the moral trend of society continues downward as, as we move deeper into the last days, and we talk about this every week, there could be temporary swings of the pendulum back toward biblical values, at least in some places and to some degree. But biblically, I think both you and I agree that we don't see a widespread revival taking place on a global scale. But the fact is, Jimmy, the gospel is still the power of God into salvation, as Paul wrote in Romans 1, and then later in Romans 10, Paul wrote that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. This was true 2,000 years ago, and it remains true today. I was thinking about that same verse you just gave us, David. The exhortation from our conversation and what the topic was focused on, I believe, is an exhortation for the body of Christ to continue to study the Word of God. We need to determine every bit of our lifestyle, our churchianity, our government of our local churches, etc., based upon our understanding of the Word of God. One of the reasons that we do this conversation each and every week right here on Prophecy Today. Hey, David, we'll be praying for you as you travel back from the Philippines. Stay away from those volcanoes, and we don't want you to get uh, erupted on before you get home. We'll talk to you next week from the United States. I'll look forward to it as always, Jimmy. Thanks a lot. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have a look at the book. We'll put all the conversations together, see what God's Word tells us about these events unfolding that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of six to ten hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. 
time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, as usual, we had some great reports from our broadcast partners. These broadcasters gave us details that you would not get in the regular media and insight into all these current events. It's key for us to understand so that we can get the insight to help us as we study Bible prophecy. If you missed any of them, let me suggest that later on you go to my website, prophecytoday.com, then go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, and there you can find all of these reports archived so that you can go there and listen to them at your convenience when the time is available for you to do that. And by the way, let me suggest you pass this information along to a, a friend who would benefit as well from listening to these reports. That's prophecytoday.com. Then go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, for the reports. Now let me rehearse what my broadcast partners had to say today and give you my prophetic perspective. Ken Timmerman covers geopolitical activities for us. We talked about Iran, who is now bragging about the fact that they are enriching more uranium today than they ever have. What's interesting about that is that Iran has already been a major player in our world today. But in the future, according to Bible prophecy, they'll be a major player as well. Iran has never kept any deal, by the way. They've always lied to ultimately accomplish their goal. They want to be nuclear-powered, and that will assist in helping them to fulfill Bible prophecy. Now, I know nuclear weapons of mass destruction are not listed in Bible prophecy. However, Iran, as a major player, can use a nuclear arsenal for the capability of accomplishing what Bible prophecy, that scenario says, will happen as it relates to Iran. That's Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 5. David Dolan, with his Middle East News Update, gave us insight into what is going on in the land of Israel. Hamas, the Islamic terror organization that is located in the Gaza Strip, Hamas is calling for massive prayer gatherings on the Temple Mount and at the Machpelah Cave in Hebron, which is the burial site for the patriarchs. By the way, these two sites are the most sacred and holy sites for the Jewish people. The Machpelah Cave is number two, the burial site for the patriarchs, and the most holy site for all of the Jewish world is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You must remember this is key in your understanding of how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is unfolding. The Palestinians do not have a history, basically, with these two sites, especially dating back in time when both the Machpelah Cave and the Temple Mount became holy to the Jewish people. 
These acts that the Palestinians are involving themselves in today is only for the purpose of advancing Islamic eschatology. Islam says that when the Mahdi, the Muslim Messiah, comes on the scene, he will go to Jerusalem and set up a worldwide caliphate, a worldwide kingdom. That gives us evidence that Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 2, that Jerusalem shall become a cup of trembling, in other words, a center of controversy, is at the point of total fulfillment. Winky Madad, who is a Jewish settler living in a place called Shiloh, very historic and biblical, was on the line with me as we talked about King Abdullah of Jordan going to the European Parliament addressing this august body and talking about annexation of Judea and Samaria and the Jordan Valley. Now that's what the Trump administration has told the Israelis they can do. And Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is now running for re-election, he is advancing that as his cause in the future. He says he will annex Judea and Samaria, and he will also annex the Jordan Valley. King Abdullah says that Israel is denying international law. May I tell you, there is no such international law. But there is God's law that is evident that this piece of real estate will belong to the Jewish people. That's Ezekiel chapter 36. And the Lord said this will be the case, not because it's for the Jews, but for his holy namesake. Itamar Marcus talked with us about the 55th anniversary of Fatah, which is the part of the body politic of Israel that was started by Yasser Arafat. It's led by Mahmoud Abbas today. They do not want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution, and that would be a Palestinian state called Palestine. They're ready to use armed struggle to make that happen. That's Ezekiel chapter 35. John Rood said that Boris Yeltsin is agreeing with President Trump about the nuclear deal with Iran. Trump withdrew from the original nuclear deal, and now his deal is saying there will never be any nuclear weapons for Iran. The Prime Minister of Great Britain says he agrees, and a nuclear-powered Iran would be dangerous not only to the Middle East, but the entire world. And David James, and with our conversation today, we're giving the details about the split in the Methodist Church over a homosexual agenda in the church. God's word is absolute on this issue. Read Genesis chapter 19. He destroyed an entire society because of homosexuality. And Romans chapter 1 says the Lord has turned his back on those people. No question as to how this subject should be played out in any church. Well, that's what our broadcast partners brought to the table today. And all of that information, when you add it up, think it through, you have to realize it is tangible evidence that the next event on God's calendar of activities, the rapture of the church, is about to happen. In fact, it could happen at any moment. And having made that statement, there's nothing left for me to say except let's keep looking up until... 
Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.